There's a much more uh, lengthy introduction that Dr. Little is going to give uh, regarding the bishop, but I really appreciate all of you being here. Um, the, the theme of the conference is a very important one, and it has uh, been running all day long, and there will be some sessions tomorrow, so this talk tonight stimulates you to come back. Red t-shirt. <laughs> look very stimulated right now. Um, it, it stimulates you to come back tomorrow. There's some presentations tomorrow as well. But it's important for us as a, a university, as a Catholic and Augustinian university, for us to be aware of the conditions of our fellow men and women around the world and the difficulties that they experience and how we as a Catholic community can respond to those conditions. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce the bishop tonight. And uh, thank you so much for coming. And please stay and interact with him. He's a wonderful man. He lives in Washington, D.C. There's no place better. <laughs> Larry, it's all up to you. Okay, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is great. You know, this is a fantastic opportunity that I'm given here. You know, I was raised in the Josephite tradition, right? Uh, my church in Baltimore, St. Peter Clayman. Um, was the Josephite Church, and uh, my mother, in many ways, kept me abreast of uh, Bishop Picard's career all through my life, right? Every now, every now and then I'd come home, and she'd say, well, Bishop Picard did this, and he got ordained, and all that, right? And so this really gives me great pleasure, right? Um, uh, bishop Picard um, is a, a, a bishop of the, was installed as the fourth bishop of the Pentecost. Pensacola, Tallahassee um, uh, uh, Diocese, right? Where he was appointed in 1997. He stayed there until uh, until 2011, right? He was appointed by uh, Pope uh, uh, John Paul II. In addition to serving as shepherd for the diocese nearly, uh, of nearly six, 65,000 Catholics, Bishop Picard served in national and international roles within the Catholic Church. Bishop was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and upon completion of high school, entered the Josephite College Seminary in Newburgh, New York. He completed his theological training at the St. Joseph Seminary in Washington, D.C., and was ordained to the priesthood on May 25, 1968. Since ordination, uh, Bishop Picard continued his studies, receiving a master's degree from Tulane University in New Orleans in 1970, and a PhD from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. in 1984. Bishop Ricard moved to the Archdiocese of Baltimore, where I'm from, where he served as auxiliary bishop since his Episcopal ordination, ordination in, on July 2nd, 1984. Bishop Ricard is a former chair of Catholic Relief Services where he served from 1995 to 2002. He also is a recent past chair of the International Policy Committee for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, where he served from 2002 to 2005. He continues to serve on the board uh, of the International Policy Committee and sits as chair of the Ad Hoc Committee for the Church in Africa. Bishop Card also served as chairman of the United States Conference Catholic Bishops Office of International Justice and Peace from 2002 to 2005. 
He serves on the Board of Trustees on the, of the National Black Catholic Congress Incorporated. Bishop Picard is now Bishop Emeritus of the Pensacola Tallahassee and, re and resides at St. Joseph's Seminary in Washington, D.C., where he is serving as rector for his former religious community, the St. Joseph Society of Sacred Heart. Of Sacred Heart. Um, again, could you please join me in welcoming Bishop Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here tonight, and there's no better way for me to spend St. Joseph's Day than to be with the community of Villanova and the Augustinian Fathers. We went to our seminary, was close to the Augustinian Seminary in Washington, D.C., where I spent uh, many years in training. I'm pleased that you are focused on uh, Africa during this conference and that you're focused on human rights. What I hope to do tonight is um, give you some basic themes of uh, Catholic social teaching as the context for our discussion on human rights and to go into two um, encyclicals of the, our present Pope where he uh, expounds to a much greater degree in particular some aspects of Catholic social teaching. So uh, we're going to try this on this PowerPoint, and I know about as much about PowerPoints as uh, I do about laying bricks, so we're gonna try our best here at, at, at Villanova. So I'm pleased that you are here. I was um, with CRS for many years, and CRS, our Catholic Relief Services, is the arm of the Catholic bishops in this country that was founded uh, right after the Second World War. And later, when uh, the Europe had achieved some degree of uh, success after the war, CRS began, began to focus on the whole world. So it has uh, missions or programs in about 100 countries throughout the world, a great deal of them being in Africa and Asia. And lately has concentrated a great deal of its time in the Sudan, and in the Congo, where there is a lot of need. So I'm pleased that you're focusing on that, and, and perhaps we can have the time to discuss this at some length uh, in the discussion. What I'd like to do is to introduce you, I'm sure you are familiar with this, to a bit more detail of the, what we call Catholic social teaching. And this first slide, tells us a little bit about what Catholic social teaching is with some emphasis on the seven themes of Catholic social teaching. Now Catholic social teaching is a rich, uh, we refer to as a body of wisdom about building a society which is fair and just and where all people have rights and are treated fairly regardless of who they are, how old they are, how much money they have or don't have, where they were born, and other such things. Now, the church has always, since its foundation, its beginning, always uh, focused on the rights and needs of others through its uh, nature. Uh, 
reflecting on the biblical uh, stories and the biblical teaching and its 22,000 year history and the teachings and lives of holy men and women, the church has always advocated and practiced what we see as Catholic social teaching. So what I'd like to do is to just walk over that, walk through that with you so that we can have some idea of what we're talking about. Now one of the first themes of the, of, uh, of the seven of, Catholic, of uh, Catholic social teaching is the life and dignity of the human person, according to this slide here. Now life is sacred in our tradition and the dignity of the human person is foundational for any vision of a moral society. Now this belief is the foundation and the principle of all of our social teaching of the church. Now in our society, human life is under direct attack from abortion and from euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. The value of human life is being threatened by cloning, <coughs> by embryonic <coughs> stem cell research and by the use of the death penalty. The intentional service targeting of civilians in war or terror attacks is always wrong. The church also teaches and calls upon us to avoid war and nations must protect the rights of, to life by funding, finding increasing effective ways to prevent conflicts and resolve them by peaceful means. We believe that every person is precious, that people are more important than things and that the measure of every institution is whether it threatens or enhances the life and dignity of the person. So the church has always taught these things, but in the, this, this presentation of Catholic social teaching and these seven themes, they are a result of the teachings, recent teachings for the past hundred years of the Holy, of the Popes, of bishop conf, bishops' conferences, and of conciliar doctrine. So here's what we see when we talk about uh, human rights and human, human life and human dignity. Notice that in this discussion of human life and human dignity, there is a discussion of abortion and euthanasia, stem cell research, death penalty, and war. We cover all threats to human life, from the womb to the tomb. So that's very important that we underscore that. The second thing that, that the second thing that's very important is the call to family. Can we lift that up just a little bit? And community. Uh, we're trying to do that. And in this, we, we believe that a person is not only sacred, but a person is also social in nature. Now, we, the, how we organize our society in economics, in policies, in law, and in policy directly affects human dignity and the capacity of human individuals to grow in community. Now, we believe that marriage and family are the central social institutions that must be supported and strengthened and determined. We believe people have a right and duty to participate in society seeking together the common good and well-being of all, especially the poor and the vulnerable. Now, we say that a person is, human person is sacred, but he's also, he or she is also sacred. Sacred, but also social. Now, 
I'm referring to the story in the book of Genesis when God made the human person, the first person, Adam. God apparently <clears throat> had <clears throat> a special place for human beings in, in God's creation. After the creation of every element of, of, uh, of existence, when God created light and darkness, when he created the earth and the sky, when he created sun and the moon, after each element of creation, God's, it, there's a commentary, a refrain that is found. And, and it's kind of an editorial that the writer mentions. God sees that what he has made, and he sees that it was good. So every, after every element of creation, there's a refrain, it was good, it was good, it was good. So that refrain is there. It was good, it was good, it was good. However, when God made the first man and woman, God saw what he had made, and God saw that this was very good, he says in the story. Now, uh, the, prior to making the first parents, our first parents, the first human person, God said to himself in the story, let us make man, the human person, in our image and likeness, in our own image, let us create him. So God made the human person in his own image and likeness. For that reason, we say that the human person has a unique position in God's creation. That's why human life is sacred and human dignity holds a special place in our thinking and in our actions. Now, if you ever wanted to see a perfect image of God in this world when, when here on earth, and if there's a quest or desire to do that, all you have to do is turn to the person next to you. Why don't we do that? Just turn to the person next to you. And that person is the perfect image of God in this world. So God is, has a special place for human life and human dignity. And uh, the other element of this, the other theme, is a call to community, as we have here. And that, that the human person is a social being. Again, because God saw that man was alone, he built or established the first woman and when he sees the first woman, the man says, this one, one at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh, it shall be called woman. And man was finally happy with this. From that moment on, we believe that God meant us to live in community. God made us social beings. So that is something we espouse also. And then your theme today has been rights and responsibility. Now, the Catholic tradition teaches that human dignity can be protected and a healthy community can be achieved only if human rights are protected and responsibilities are met. We therefore believe that every human person has a fundamental right to life and to those things required for human dignity. Corresponding to these rights are duties and responsibility to one another, to our families, and to a larger society. Now, when we speak of rights and responsibility, and there's a lot of debate about this today, especially during this political, uh, political year, we speak of every person have a right, having a right to life, 
And a right to employment, a right to health care, a right to decent housing, a right to raise a family, and they're all required, we believe, for the production of a human person. And in communities that are developing throughout the world, the right to participate in government, the right to vote. So these, we believe, are fundamental human rights emanating from the fact that we are a human person. And then the next theme, dominant theme in this, is the, of, is the option fundamental option for the poor and vulnerable. Now we believe that the basic moral test is how most, the most vulnerable members of society are faring in a society marred by deepening, deepening divisions between rich and poor. And we hear this debated so clearly in this present campaign among the Republican Party. Our tradition recalls the story of the Last Judgment, Matthew 25 and instruct us to put the needs of the poor and those who are vulnerable first. So we feel, and more often this is rhetoric rather than reality, but we feel basically that there is a, we have a responsibility for the poor and the vulnerable. Now in Matthew 25, that famous gospel at the la of the Last Judgment in St. Matthew's Gospel, the Lord God uh, the Lord Christ sits on a throne and he is judging people who stand at his right and at his left. And those who are at his right are judged to come into the God's kingdom. He says, be part of my kingdom, you permission to go to heaven, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless, etc., etc." And they surprised, we'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you without clothing? Are you out homeless? And respond to you in your need. He said, as long as you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And the people on his left, who are going to not share in God's kingdom, but condemned, he said, I was hungry, you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you did not, not, not give me drink. Naked, you did not clothe me, etc., etc. And they will say, in their surprise, they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and not feed you, you thirsty, and so forth and so forth. And he will say, as long as you didn't do it for the least of my brothers and sisters, you didn't do it for me. So the criteria for judgment for those who follow Christ is to see in the needs of others, Christ himself. So, and further, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember that parable? Of the man who was mugged as he walked down a road and was left mugged and left half dead in a ditch. And along that same road, a certain priest walks by and he looks at the man, probably for a minute, to, to, just, just looking at him, and he doesn't stop to attend to him. He keeps going. And later on, a Levite, which is the kind of our equivalent to a permanent deacon in society, this guy also sees the man in the ditch and walks by, does not stop, does not want to get involved. And there's a Samaritan 
who also walks by the same road, sees the man in trouble, stops, is moved with pity. He stops for him, and he tends to him in his need. And the whole story is about who is my neighbor? And so Jesus asks the question of everyone who is hearing the parable, well, who was neighbor to the man who fell down in with robbers? And they all agree that the Samaritan was the neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The Samaritan was the neighbor. So we cannot choose who we're going to help or not help. Whoever we encounter on the road to life, according to that parable, is the person who is our neighbor and we must attend to. So in this story, as in our understanding God's command for us, we are obligated to those in need, wherever we encounter them, however we encounter them, in this road to life, if we encounter them and they are in need, we have to respond to them. That's the interpretation of the option for the poor in the need. And then the second theme, important theme of the seven of Catholic social teaching is the dignity of work and of workers. The economy, we believe, must serve, must serve people, not the other way around. People don't serve the economy. The economy serves people. Work is more than a way of making a living. It is a form of continuation, continuing participation in God's creation. If the dignity of work is to be protected, then the basic rights of workers must be respected. The right to productive work, to decent and fair housing and wages, to the organization and joining of unions, to private property, and to an economic initiative. Well, that sounds a bit radical, but the church has always taught this. The church still does. And although, again, with the present debate, there's a lot of comment on this, and a lot of people would disagree, especially in the present climate, that is really what, where the church has been for the past 150 years, that people have a right to be organized. They have a right to join unions, and they should be joining unions, and they have a right to decent work. They have a right to a decent living wage. They have a right to decent working conditions. That applies not only in this country, also elsewhere. Because a lot of debate today, of course, is about the working conditions in the developing world, in China, where apples is made, where Nike is made. That the demands that we made and the achievements that we have in terms of decent working conditions in this country, we don't see as exportable or as important overseas as they are in this country. So uh, social teaching makes it very clear that everyone has this right. And there's also the second to the last uh, theme of Catholic social teaching is solidarity. We are one human family, whether whatever our national, racial, ethnic, economic, or ideological difference. We are our brothers and our sisters keepers, wherever they may be. Loving our neighbor has global dimensions in the shrinking world. At the core of the virtue of solidarity is the pursuit of justice and peace. Now, Paul, Pope Paul VI 
taught that if you want peace, work for justice. The gospel calls us to be peacemakers. The love for all our brothers and sisters demand that we protect peace, promote peace in the world surrounded by violence and conflict. Remember the story in the book of Genesis of Cain and Abel, two brothers, <clears throat> for whatever the reason, they are in conflict with one another, and one brother kills the other. Surviving brother, Cain, kills his brother and buries his body in the, in the ground. Later on, God comes around, according to the story, and God asks him, he says, where is your brother? Tell me what have you done to him? Where is your brother? And he is surprised that God asked him this question. He says, who, me? Are you talking to me? God says, yes. He says, where is your brother? He says, am I? I don't know where he is. He's lying, of course. And he's covering things up. And he says, well, am I my brother's keeper? The famous, one of the most famous lines in history. And he says, resoundingly, God says resoundingly, yes, you are your brother's and your sister's keeper. Yes, you are. We are our brother's and our sister's keeper. So we are responsible for each other, for one another, wherever they are throughout the world. That is why you get involved as a community of faith. That is why we get involved as a, as a church in the needs of Sudan or Congo or China, other places in the world, because we are our brother's and sister's keeper. Finally, the last theme I will go into is this theme of the care for God's creation, a relatively new theme, which focuses on the external environment in which we live. And we, saw, we show our respect for the Creator by our stewardship of creation. Care for the earth is not just Earth Day and an Earth Day slogan, it is a requirement of our faith. We are called to protect people and to protect the, climate, the planet, living our faith in relationship with all of God's creation. This environmental challenge has fundamental moral and ethical dimensions that cannot be ignored. So the basis, the foundation for our involvement in the world, our involvement overseas, our involvement in this country, is the, are these basic seven principles of the Catholic social teaching, and that's been part of the church's tradition for over 100 years. So, well, I'm gonna move from here to get into the next slide. You're still with me, Anne. The next slide, and the next slide focuses on particular aspects of the Catholic social teaching, especially as they're expressed in the writings of Benedict XVI and his two, his two uh, teachings the uh, Caritas in Veritates and Deus uh, God is love, God is love. Now, we're gonna try to do this with the first one. Can you give me the next slide, if we get this working? The next one, next one. Uh, okay. We're going to look at this Catholic social teaching, this teaching of, of Benedict XVI from our perspective as a Christian, as an individual, and as a citizen. What is Benedict teaching us, saying to us in this encyclical, 
as a Christian, as Christians, as individuals, as we are a citizen of these United States. Okay, the next one. Our, the outline I'm going to use is uh, to look at this from the perspective of the mission we have as Christians. What is our mission in terms of our outreach to the world and our responsibility towards one another? What is our message? And the message in the, this particular slide is going to be Deus Caritasas, es God is love, in Caritas in Veritate, God, uh, charity and truth. And then I'm going to suggest that the bishops are suggesting some directions we might take in this regard and some dangers we have to avoid. And then hopefully we have some questions for discussion. Okay. And the next one, please. Now, our mission. The mission is what brings us together as Catholics concerned with outreach and concerned with uh, involvement with the poor. Involvement with the well, what brings us together is the Word of God. God's Word is what forms us, gives us the direction and the focus as well as the teaching of the church. The church has a rich 2,000-year teaching that still directs us, gives us focus. So we are not propelled or not moved by politics or ideology. We're not Republican, we're not Democrat. We're not compelled by the E either. We're not a democratic party at prayer. It used to be, used to be said when there was more leaning towards beings which now lean towards more Democrats. The Conference of Catholic Bishops used to be called the Democratic Party at prayer. And now, today, as there seems to be, seem to be more leaning towards Republicans among the bishops, it is now referred to as the Religious Caucus of the Republican Party. But we are really neither, neither. We are brought together by the Word of God and the teaching of the church. So we're not brought together by ideology or politics. We neither. And we have a mission statement. Our mission statement is this mission statement of Jesus, as he expressed in St. Luke's, the fourth chapter. And Jesus said, his first public speak, his first public words in St. Luke's Gospel, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the Lord has anointed me, he has to bring good news to the poor, liberty to captives, new sight for the blind, to set the downtrodden free. That is the mission statement of Jesus. This, that is our mission statement as the church extends itself to the world into the community. He says news, good news to the poor. He's talking not only about preeminently about material poverty, but people who live in poor conditions. Now Mother Teresa would visit here many times, as you know, when she was alive. She always said, made this comment, that when she came to America, she saw a different type of poverty, very deep poverty in the eyes of the American people. It's a poverty of spirit a poverty of loneliness, a poverty of love. So Jesus focuses himself 
on the needs of the poor, the needs of those who are liber need to be liberated from captivity, and captivity to oppressive systems, oppressive conditions, people who are blinded by ideology, by their prejudice, by their bigotry, and people who are downtrodden, again, because they live in conditions that are not human. And Jesus says, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And that's really amen. Now, the next slide, please. The mission is integral. It is foundational. It is traditional. And it is central. Now, we cannot call ourselves Catholic unless we carry out the mission of Jesus. We don't say this because it's one more thing we should feel bad about, but that is the mission of Jesus, and that has to be our mission if we are to be faithful in our faith, faithful in the following of Jesus. Something else about the mission. If we take this mission seriously, it helps us not to just do more, but to be more, to be more Christian, to be more Catholic, to be more the body of Christ, to be more the people of God here in Villanova, Pennsylvania. The bad news of all this is that this is the best kept secret in the church of God. Nobody reads me, talks or about it. As a matter of fact, I was uh, many years ago, I made this presentation, something similar to this, uh, of uh, the Catholic social teaching and of the involvement of the church in human life and society. And one lady said to me, in all sincerity, she said, is the Catholic Church social, a socialist? Oh, I, we have a ways to go in all this. So, with this mission, we have a message. And what is our message? The message is a biblical mandate. It is a moral framework. It is a set of principles, all of which I'm getting into, hopefully, before the sign is over. And most of all, it is anchored in the Word of God. What a better anchor can we have than the Word of God? In the book of Genesis, it says, the earth is the Lord in its fullness. That's our basis, because this is God's earth. We take care of God's earth environmentally. There's a duet in the book of, 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 of uh, Exodus when Moses warns everybody to choose life, to choose death or destruction. So we have a choice to choose. We have a freedom to choose life over death, destruction over, over blessing. And then we have the, the message of the prophets. And there is a passion for the poor throughout the prophets. The prophets, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, as a few, and Jeremiah and the rest, made it very clear that God had a passion, a concern, a deep concern for the poor and those at risk in society. As a matter of fact, so great was God's concern for the poor, the Anawim, the little ones, that God would say to the prophets, to Amos and the others, say to the people, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your incense. It's loathsome to me. Don't come here with sacrifices, external worship. 
First take care of the needs of the poor and those who are at risk. Then come back and offer a sacrifice to me. It's very clear. It's passion. It can be violent, the language. But God makes it very clear that we have, we have an obligation first to love and to serve. Then we come with our sacrifices. And we have, of course, the good news from the words of Jesus, who said, I have come to bring life and life to the full. Then he says, as long as you care for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you care for me. That's clear. And then he says, blessed are you, how happy you will be, who hunger and thirst for justice and right. You will be satisfied. And he says, be not just peacekeepers, but peacemakers. A lot of people are content with keeping the peace, but Jesus says we must go beyond that and become peacemakers. In our next slide, we speak of, again, Catholic social teaching. We're not just talking about platitudes or bumper stickers, bumper sticker solutions. And we are totally politically incorrect when it comes to Catholic social teaching in the eyes of so many, unfortunately, so many Catholics. And this is not just what would Jesus do. This is more deeply and fundamentally important than that. So when we speak, at least when I'm speaking now of Catholic social teaching, I'm speaking specifically of the church's teaching in the last 150 years. And that began in 1891 with Rerum Novarum, the famous encyclical of Leo XIII. And this encyclical, this letter, for the first time addressed specific needs of the poor, of displaced, of the homeless. That was a time when a lot of people were displaced because of the Industrial Revolution, threw a lot of people out of work and out of homes. <clears throat> and the Pope addressed the needs of decent working conditions, of, 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 of social conditions that would help feed families and keep families alive. So that was the first time there was an explicit teaching addressing the church, involvement of the church in the needs of others. And uh, several years later, in 1931, 40 years later, the theme was repeated. And if you look down on this quadra, quadragesima annus in 1971, this was a theme that was repeated again. And then 100 years later, 1991, this theme was also repeated. The church is very, always very much involved and concerned about the needs of others, the needs of the poor, the needs of its own people. And of course, you heard earlier today, Gaudium et Spes, Pacem in Terrace. You heard about uh, Evangelium Vitae. All of these were teachings that permeate and that form and shape our understanding of our approach to the world. And today we're focusing on Deus Caritas S and Caritas in Veritate. This is what I'm focusing on. So let's continue.
with Deus Caritas as our God is love. Now, when Pope Benedict wrote this encyclical, right after his assuming the position of the leader of the church in the world as Pope, we saw this as very much, uh, at least most people saw this as an unexpected topic, very surprised. Because he was saying, in effect, all you need is love. Love is the basis, the foundation. And he warns against partisan ideological tendencies and calls for a formation of the human heart. So there are two encyclicals that he speaks of. And here, in Deus Caritas, the fundamental notion is love of God and love of neighbor has become one. In the least of these brethren, we find Jesus himself. And in finding Jesus, we find God. It's even better, what he says. And he's on love for widows and orphans, prisoners, the sick, and the needy of every kind is as, is as essential to her, the church, as the ministry of the sacraments and the preaching of the gospel. That's a pretty bold statement the Pope makes today. And he says, the church, same thing, the church cannot neglect the service of charity any more than she can neglect the sacraments and the word. That is why a part of every parish ministry or the St. Vincent de Paul Society, hopefully, or the Ladies of Charity or some food collection. Because, he, again, he is underscoring how the connection between these two, that you cannot neglect and call ourselves Christian beneath the poor. And he says, further, <clears throat> charity must be animated. It must animate the entire lives of the lay faithful. And therefore, also, their political activity lived as social charity. Imagine saying that to Catholics today. You know, for that we get you. That's what the Pope said. That's part of our tradition. And that, so that he's, he's saying, in effect, there are three things that make the church the church. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ celebrating the sacraments and care and stand for, standing for, with the very least of these, the poor and the vulnerable. That says a mouthful. You have, we see we have a long ways to go as a people, as a church, in coming to terms with this and living this out. Now the other encyclical, Benedict XVI, that he also, that was published not very long ago, Caritas in Veritate. He continues the same theme in a different direction. And it's not easy reading. It's really not easy reading. And it's really an ethical analysis and moral framework of, of society, and it challenges all of us. This is what he says in, his, in effect. He says, first of all, that there are a lot of and connections, A and D. Connection between charity and truth. Between the protection of life and, and the pursuit of justice. Between rich and poor. Between business and ethics. Between care for the earth and care for all of these least. So charity, the heart, Truth, the mind, one, 
for the Catholic, for the Christian. And then he says, the unity of the church, continuing the same theme, social and moral teaching, making fundamental connections between charity and truth, between protection of life and the pursuit of justice, there is a single teaching, consistent and at the same time, ever old, ever new. He warns, next slide please, he warns against certain abstract subdivisions of the church's social doctrine. He insists that respect for life cannot in any way be detached from questions concerning the development of peoples. They are one and the same. And openness to life is a center of true human development. The next slide, please. He says, he writes, if we love others with charity, then first of all, we are, to just, we, are, we are just towards them. Not only is justice not extraneous to charity, it is not, not only is it not an alternative or parallel path to charity, justice is inseparable from charity. And intrinsic to it, justice is the primary work of charity. So, there we have it. He makes it very clear that we can, that whereas a lot of folks, including myself, are comfortable with giving charity to others, the real difficult question of working at systems, addressing systems that lead to poverty and want, systems, in, which is real justice, is much more difficult to attack. And of course, there are not a lot of new problems he surfaces in this. It illuminates the church's social doctrine, illuminates with an unchanging light the new problems that are constantly emerging. The clear proof at this present time of the effects of sin in economic life is here. I think we can all agree to that, and that sin, which is here, of course, is a sin of greed. The economy, especially after what we've done, been since 19, 2008, the economy needs, needs ethics in order to function correctly. Not any ethic whatsoever, but an ethic which is people-centered. Locating resources, financing production, consumption, and all the other phases in the economic cycle Never we have moral implications. Thus, every economic decision has a moral consequence. Here's something very important he says. Purchasing is always a moral act and not simply an economic act. The next time we buy a new Apple or a Nike or something like this, it's a moral act. He reminds us. Development is not possible, is impossible without upright men and women, without financiers and politicians, whose consciences are finely attuned to the requirements of the common good. So basically, this is a snapshot, an introduction to the teaching of Benedict XVI in these two encyclicals, which I think lays the framework for our discussion. So I hope this has been helpful to you and maybe uh, if there are some questions, we can begin some discussion.
or answer that you may have. So I'm going to stop right here. Thank you very much. You've been very attentive. interpret that in the same light that you do. Because, uh, for example, for CRS has for years employed those who are not Catholic. Uh, when we were in Bosnia, for example, in CRS that is, most of the staff were Muslims, much to the chagrin of the Christian bishops and Christian Catholic bishops in Bosnia. They, they vociferously were opposed to that. And we had to constantly go to the Vatican and argue how important it was for us to have the, uh, this mix. And the Vatican agreed with us. Justice and Peace agreed with us that this was an important thing because it was building up the ancient animosities. And often we find, we found that, that at the local level, <clears throat> there's much more animosity to this working together than at the top level, where they have a different perspective, a wider perspective. So um, I really don't see the words are there, but the practice really remains very much this mix, this understanding, this, this necessity and need for it. Secondly, this uh, idea that the, uh, the um, work of the church differs from the work of the laity. I think that reflects uh, some thinking that from different dicasteries in the Holy See that differed, and I think that's been corrected a great deal, at least operationally. So I'm saying, in effect, some diplomatic way that there's some elements that went into those encyclicals. And, and you know, the Pope gets a lot of advice when he works on an encyclical. There are many people who pen uh, elements of the encyclical. Many people, and many people do disagree. But I think it's very clear that the, the dominant sentiment and the dominant interpretation, and the encyclical 
I'm not equivocating here, but the encyclical is, is unfolding. It's, it's up to interpretation. And, and I think it's evolving in this regard. But I know the dominant thinking, practically speaking, is that everybody works for justice, everybody works for the poor, and everybody should be involved. I'm so glad to hear you uh, make such emphasis of the participation in the economic life of society and that part of uh, the bishop's pastoral and economics and the key points of, of that. Um, one of the things I haven't seen from the bishops is them taking opportunity of the anniversaries of economic justice and for all and to come out and reiterate those points. They took opportunity for the 10th anniversary, we waited in the 20th, waited at the 25th. There's now time to prepare for the 30th. Do you know if it's on the bishop's agenda to say that again, make a statement there because it does affect our life as Catholics, especially here in the United States. I, I think there'll be more of a reluctance to do that today. Um, as a matter of fact, this um, habit or this practice of anniversaries has been largely discontinued because the shift or the emphasis in the conference seems to be more on the internal life of the church. Um, more recently, there are bishops in the conference who are focused on, are formed by, or see themselves directed by. The uh, gaudium espes, the joy, the hope, the grief, the anguish of the people, uh, they or the joy, the hope, the grief, the anguish of the followers of Christ. There are more bishops focused in that direction or see their ministry as focused in that, and, 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 and act in that way. There are other bishops who are more focused on Lumen Gentium, that is the internal life of the church. The church uh, in terms of vocation, the liturgy. That seems to be a tug of war that exists in the two bodies. That's why you don't see as much as an emphasis today as you did see in the past. God even his best. So that's kind of a creative th tension, I believe, within the Bishop's Conference that is real. <laughs> well, it, 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 it waxes and wanes, goes in different direction. The church is a dynamic body that doesn't stand still. Bishop, I'd like to take the side of the lady who heard your lecture on Catholic social teaching and then asked, is the church socialist? Uh, you did not agree with her. I do agree with her. That is to say, if the church took seriously what it was teaching, it would realize it is backing as human rights, the human rights in Articles 22, 22 to 27 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which are material human rights. The earlier, earlier human rights, life, liberty, property, say to government, keep your hands off, don't bother with us. But the material human rights say to the government, help us provide these things, provide schools for us, provide hospitals for us, guarantee every one of us medical care in those hospitals, provide shelters for us, provide food stamps for us. 
To do this thoroughly is not to do it as a right if it's done by charity. If it's done by charity, it's charity and not right. Like releasing your slaves out of charity. Slaves should be released out of right, and people should have jobs. The right to a job is a right to life. So, what I'm trying to say is, if you understand the word socialist correctly, if you know that communism was autocratic socialism, and the autocratic part was bad, but the socialistic part was good, everybody had a job in the Soviet Union, if you realize that the good kind of socialism is the democratic socialism, for instance, of that prominent Catholic, Michael Harrington, who was the head of the Democratic Socialists in America, after writing the book that started the war on poverty in the Kennedy-Johnson administrations, if you realize then that socialism does not mean communism, it doesn't mean that the government has to own all the productive property, but it does mean that the government perhaps owns the hospitals, or if it doesn't own them, at least guarantees every citizen the needed health care in the hospital. If all this is realized, I think we'd all be happy if the United States had the kind of party which has generated these things in Europe, social democratic parties. When John Kennedy stood in Berlin accusing the communists of evil, hoping that Berlin would be free, he was standing next, as he said, ich bin ein Berliner, to Willie Brandt, who was a social democrat. So what I'm trying to say is I wish we could have a closer connection between the church and at least one kind of party, social democratic parties, and I just wish people would stop thinking of socialism as something evil. Uh, the Red Bishop Arceo of, uh, where was he? Guadalajara, Mexico, just died. Uh, Bishop Ruiz, the friend of the Zapatistas in Mexico, the liberation theologians, it isn't bad to be a socialist, and I wish the church would espouse the term moral. Uh, I'm sorry if I've put you in a bad situation. I like you. Well stated. Well, I, I can't argue with you. Certainly, but, uh, but the, the church in Europe and the church in other countries are much more to the left, much more embraceive of this. It's part of the American culture that's we find that, that uh, it's very hard for them to even begin to understand what you articulated, what's important. So I, I find it very difficult. It takes time for the catechesis to take place, that uh, this Calvinistic strain that, that permeates American, the American culture and American Catholicism, Calvinistic Catholics, that, that it, it is very real. So it's part of the, what do we do? Bishop Ricard, could you please tell someone like me, just the average Catholic in the pew, if there are seven principles of Catholic social teaching, it seems to me that principles two through seven don't trickle down in the pew on the Sunday. Can you address that? Two through seven? Yes. Like we all know about uh, the dignity of life and respecting human life and are cool with that, but I feel like the other six are never preached and don't reach the average Catholic, and if you could talk about that. Well, I can't say much about it, except the fact that it's very real, and um, it's very hard to get the understanding that we, as a Catholics, as a church, espouse 
this consistent ethic of life. There's a consistency in our understanding and preaching and teaching. And, and, and teaching. It's very hard to get it through. What I found, the frustration that I would found, for example, as a bishop, is that uh, people have um, <clears throat> displaced religion or the fundamental values of religion, as, as religion as a basis for believing what we do or, or acting for politics. So politics become, becomes the real basis and the foundation for a lot of this stuff. So you don't get very far, especially when the emotions get into it. So I would totally agree with you. And couldn't agree with you more because uh, one of the problems I found is that uh, it's very hard to speak about any topics that um, very hard to speak about the death penalty, very hard to speak about abortion, very hard to speak about uh, this uh, euthanasia, any of these things. Very difficult in church today because it's uh, right away you have such a level of polarity in society that's just permeate the church that makes it our work, those of who, us who see a wider perspective, very difficult, much more difficult. It's not impossible almost impossible. Maybe not at this moment, but maybe it'll get better. But. Hey, Bishop. Um, I have a question. I noticed a bit of a disconnect between um, the things that you're saying here and the preachings of the Catholic Church. Um, you spoke a lot about the human rights that are guaranteed to every human person, right? Such as um, the right to raise a family, um, marriage, the right to have a job, uh, just basic human rights that every human person deserves. And to me, that's conflicting with the preachings of the Catholic Church that are stripping these rights from the LGBT population. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that It's a very difficult one. It's, um, Does everybody understand what you're speaking, referring to? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the church feels very strongly and believes that um, when it comes to the right to marry, uh, to raise a family, to get together, that those rights emanate from the intent of the Creator as expressed in the sacred scripture. That it was God's intention that man and woman should be together. That uh, his intention, God's will, is expressed in men and, men and women coming together in marriage and, produce, and raising children. We believe uh, fundamentally that uh, at this time, at least, unless, uh, otherwise revealed, that that's God's intention. Now you may have to give the church a chance to come to terms with something else. And it may take time for the church to come to, but presently the understanding of the church and the deep-rooted uh, practice of the church is that uh, marriage, marriage is not a marriage of a, as we understand it, is what, God intended to be between man and woman, between and so forth. Other than that, 
I can't say very much other than that. I think you know with the teaching of the church. And, and uh, the church doesn't see this as a human right, but as something comes from, that comes from God, that's revealed by God. And uh, therefore, we, we, can't, we can't change that, or can't, can't alter that at this present moment. And uh, that, that, that's the, way the present situation, the state of things, and I think it will be a state of things for some time. So it doesn't see this as a right anymore that I, I have a right to be ordained a priest or anybody has a right to be ordained a priest. That I, that I, that I have a right to, to any other things. That these, these are coming from God and uh, that's where it, it stands. Now this is a very difficult topic. Difficult for you, difficult for me, difficult for the church as it wrestles with this. Because we know that there's human, there are human feelings, that people get hurt, that people have different levels of understanding about this, and that people are human beings. But I think the society has to wrestle with this, the church has to wrestle with it, and to come to terms with what is God's will in all of this, so that we can have a better understanding of who we are and what God intends. That's not a very good answer because I don't think there is one. It's the, yes. Um, I just wanted one thing that uh, stuck out to me most uh, was when you said that we cannot call ourselves Catholic if we don't follow Jesus' preaching. Uh, when you mentioned that he preaches love and, and the guarantee of these human rights to all human persons. Um, so, Either we're not considering the LGBT population as part of every human person, or we're not considering the Catholic Church to be true Catholics. And this is the disconnect that I'm seeing, and this is why I'm having a tough time understanding. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you. Well stated, yes. That that happens, yes. I think that's very clear in, in statements the church has said, at least the bishops in this country has made. But you're, you're correct, absolutely correct. Makes it very difficult, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Bishop. Um, I, this, the principles, the foundation on which we go out and agitate, if you will, for respect for human rights, I think they are shared by all religions, shared by all human beings. I mean, I don't know who would object to these things. The challenge is how you go out and and operationalize those and make sure that they are respected and implemented. 
when you so then where do we go from here in terms of is it now according to the individual to go out and do it or is are these things the thing that the church can take and use them to challenge any entity, be it a state or any organization that is taking away these principles, these, these basic rights from people. Are these the, is this the way, the, would they change them out as an institution to point them out to a state, let's say the Taliban <laughs> or um, the Sudanese regime or the Mobutu? in the old days or uh, in Zimbabwe today and say you are violating basic rights and it is from the point of view of the church that you cease from doing this and still remain in the country? <laughs> I mean, can the church go out and campaign for the, for the respect of these rights uh, and institution or do you now leave it to each individual Catholic to say it is my responsibility as an individual who believes in these principles to go out and campaign for this? Do we do it institutionally or do we do it individually? Well, I think it has to be both. Um, <clears throat> and clearly the, 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 the words of uh, Benedict XVI, I mean, that he makes it very clear what his thinking is, what is taught. And that's evidence that the church is very concerned and calls upon the men and women in the pew, all of us, to live these words and to practice them. Uh, certainly, uh, for example, with the um, Iraq war, um, the Pope himself made very clear that we should not go to war. I was chairman of that committee when the Pope sent um, Cardinal Laghi to Washington with a letter from the Pope to give to George Bush. And the, the content of the letter, which later released and made public, was that please don't go to war. In effect, it's, he spoke of it as a failure to humanity. And he chose to ignore it. At the same time, the bishops' conference made it very clear at the bishops' level that we, should, we don't see any compelling reason why we should do that. So I think it's these various fronts at the individual level, at the level of the laity, at the level of the clergy, at the level of the Pope himself, there, there is a, a sense that there is an obligation and that the church uh, makes itself real by involving in all these things. The difficulty is, is getting other people to listen. Uh, it's, you mentioned Mugabe, for example. I know that Mugabe has been preached to, written to, uh, has been, there has been action taken on Mugabe, and which he chooses to ignore at the individual level and at the church, at the level of the hierarchy. So it's, it's getting the, the uh, people who need to move and need to change to listen, to be persuaded to listen. Many times we're not able to persuade and they won't happen. But I think the church is involved very clearly at all these levels. It has been and continues to be a very large degree. So it's not just uh, 
the Pope saying something, you know, telling Catholics they should do something. It's everybody involved. He calls all of us to live this life, to live this teaching that he has. So it's a responsibility for everyone. And the intent is for everyone. Thank you. This one, I, I would very much like to thank Bishop McCarr for being here with us and for being so open and responsive to our questions and uh, so very honest. The uh, challenges of every organization, church included, are monumental. And we are always trying to be careful that our political uh, agendas don't get enmeshed in moral and religious issues. But Every single one of us struggles with that in a society that's highly polarized. But I'd like to thank you for navigating some of those questions for us in ways that are very open and honest and not one that we have that many answers for. And I'm reminded in your talk of Peter Henio and Joe Holland's book on Catholic social teaching, The Best Kept Secret. Um, that's pretty old at this juncture, but the message is the same. Catholic social teaching has rarely been preached from the pulpit. It is our best kept secret. So thank you. Appreciate your being here.